Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to On Brand with Alf and me, Rory Sutherland. Each month... As ever, I'll be talking to household names as well as challenger brands about success, challenges and future opportunities in the advertising, marketing and media industries. Alf Insight is the UK's leading business development platform for the advertising and marketing industry. And on the 19th of April, Alf will be celebrating the UK's leading marketing and sales brands. Sales and marketing teams are at the heart of every business's success, as we know, and the Alpha Awards in 2023 offers the opportunity to celebrate these achievements and network with your peers. To view the shortlist or to book a table for the awards ceremony, all you need to do is visit www.alphawards.com. www.alfawards.com. Today, I'm joined by Lars Silberbauer, Chief Marketing Officer for Nokia Phones and HMD Global. Lars has been named as one of the most innovative and influential marketers in Europe, and before joining Nokia in September, held positions with the International Olympic Committee, MTV, Viacom, and Lego, which I think is an almost unparalleled CV, if I may say so. So, Lars, welcome to the podcast. I think it's probably worth some of our listeners who will be going, Nokia phones, does that mean Windows phones? Uh, People who have almost certainly a huge nostalgic love for the Nokia handset brand. Um, It's probably worth just going over the recent history since, what, 2016 on what's actually been happening with Nokia, the handset brand and tablet brand, as distinct from Nokia, the kind of B2B uh, hardware high-tech brand in terms of mobile connectivity at the operator level. Is that something worth doing? I think it probably is because we'll have an enormous spectrum of uh, familiarity all the way from people who know exactly what HMD is to people who are going, what? You can get Nokia handsets again. So it's probably worth doing that background before we do anything else, I think. Sounds good. And uh, and thank you for, for having me on your, your podcast. Really appreciate it. As you mentioned, I joined in September coming from very different industries, uh, coming from the toy industry at Lego, sports and entertainment from Viacom, MTV and, and the Olympic Committee. And now I'm with uh, Nokia mobile phones and, uh, and HMD Global, who is uh, the manufacturer and developer of Nokia phones globally. So, so what has happened since, since uh, 2016? A lot has happened. And uh, HMD has been bringing Nokia phones back globally. And we're quite proud to say that, that actually we are now, uh, again, uh, a global manufacturer of mobile phones and we are selling millions of phones uh, each quarter. So it's, it's not just a, a novelty that Nokia phones are back. It has been in some markets we are we are actually market leaders, and of course we're we're growing. We're coming from a small base, but it's also why I joined the company because I see a, a big opportunity in actually bringing the Nokia brand and the quality, sustainability, and and longevity in the Nokia mobile phones back to consumers. I had a Nokia phone my, myself. I actually had a few way back. So so for me it was kind of a love brand to to join. Uh, when I joined in September. I mean, interestingly, it still has a small cohort of loyal users of the old Nokia phones, people who are resistant to smartphones, who simply want something to text and call. You actually have, uh, including some very surprising figures in the tech industry, and people who are just opposed to the idea of smartphones 
uh, on kind of ideological or psychological grounds. But what is undoubtedly the case, I always think that this was a brand that was the victim of, in a sense, a double misfortune, that had it gone to Android, it would have actually continued as a very successful brand, a very successful hardware brand. On the other hand, and I have a certain sympathy here, the Windows phone interface was actually quite good. I had one myself and in many ways preferred it either both for the iPhone and Android interface of the time with the tiling. The problem was it was just a category in which it's almost impossible to be a number three. In the end, I gave it to my daughter when her iPhone broke and she secretly loved it, but A, feared the ridicule of her school classmates, and B, I think there were a couple of things like Snapchat, which weren't available on the platform, which, if you're a school kid, basically renders it impossible. But I always feel that Windows Phone was actually a rather lovely interface, <laughs> and um, it just suffered from network effects and nothing else. On its own merits, it was really rather good. Um, but this is a brand, you know, I, I can't think of a brand where probably there's more essentially residual consumer goodwill. You know, they're one of those brands like Pan Am, if you like, which um, I always think if you resurrected it tomorrow, you'd have a fairly popular airline. And, um, you know, the residual consumer goodwill and I think the belief in your quality as a hardware manufacturer is still there among a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. And 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 I think also the fact that like actually the, the phones that we're producing today are both feature phones, but also smartphones. Yes. And those are Android enabled smartphones. So we have a strong partnership with, with Google. And I think what what happened back in the days, I, I was not around in the company back then. Um, so so I'll, I'll leave the, the, the people that were there to, to discuss and, uh, and have that discussion about what went wrong. But the phones that we are bringing to market now are with a clean Android. Uh, I, I think that's, again, like there's two, two uh, OS in the market. And, uh, and I think like it's, it's iOS or it's Android. And with this, the partnership we have with um, with Google, I think it's a very very strong value proposition, both with a with a clean Android and and also bringing all of the functionalities that the Android platform has when it comes to kids' safety with with parents' devices, with tablet devices, and so on. It's a very strong value proposition in my mind. So so it's the products we're selling now are both uh, the the very loved and beloved new versions of the, the feature phones which are very popular uh, all around the world, even in, in UK, I, I can say, um, and then the, the smartphones that, that we keep developing. So, um, so it's, it's, it's a very different uh, phone than uh, the 3310 that you probably had back then. I did. Uh, it's a much better device. And it also, it, it, it comes, of course, as a price point that is, that is considerably lower than the, some of our competitors. Do you have plans as well to tackle, let's say, Samsung, I suppose, at the top end and bring out a sort of flagship phone? Because bizarrely, in order to do that, you have to price it almost at iPhone levels, even if you're capable of selling it for less. Is that one of the things you've considered? With, with, without, <laughs> I don't want to disclose our entire marketing and product portfolio. Product, product portfolio. I think what we really are focusing on is uh, satisfying consumer needs that are not already being met and less focusing on competing head-to-head -head against the, the giants of the industry. Because, of course, we're in somewhat a newcomer. And uh, not to go into and disclose too much, but I can say that my marketing budget is fairly smaller than, than both uh, Apple's and, uh, and Samsung's marketing budget. So, so for us to go head-to-head -head against them with a flagship and, and global like flagship launch would not be uh, very wise. So we have different plans and different ways to, to approach the markets and, and the markets where we want to really go big and make sure that we make an impact but it's a it's a, it's a big challenge to, to be honest and, uh, and that's also why i joined uh, i also joined lego when when they were at a point where they were not as relevant and as big as they are today and that is what i found in my career is actually one of the most important and most interesting challenges is to take beloved brands and then really figuring out what what is the brand dna about and then building on top of that and innovating on top of that and bringing that brand DNA back to the consumers, but in a new way that is uh, the, the brand that they loved, but in a, in a way that they never seen it before. And I think that is what companies and brands like Lego, MTV, Nokia, and so on needs to do to, to stay relevant. So you were um, Senior Global Director of Social Media and Video at the Lego Group, but you're also Viacom Digital Studios. 
what was your particular role there without going, turning this into a nostalgia trip? <laughs> That's fine with me. It is not that, that many years ago, so, so I can still remember it fairly clearly. Uh, so I was senior vice president at, uh, at MTV Digital Studios in New York and, uh, and had a team in New York and a team in LA. And the challenge there was really to take a fairly traditional TV production and TV mindset and bring that into the digital age which of course requires a completely different way of working and a completely different way to go to market or go to the consumers through digital channels. And uh, like now we're doing a, a podcast, for instance, which of course comes with different production costs at a lower level than TV and the same thing. That was my role and my, my challenge at, at, at MTV to really do that at scale while still uh, keeping the business or making the business uh, profitable. So that, that, that was my, my role at, uh, at MT, which is exciting uh, and was exciting. And it was very, very educating to be part of U.S. entertainment at, uh, at that point. Tech businesses are, in some respects, surprisingly conservative, aren't they? You'd always assume that MTV and so on would be absolutely up for reinvention. And you know, indeed, it's very, very necessary. But there is a surprising sort of conservatism. You'll also find, I suppose, uh, because Nokia is the result of a, effectively a buyback, isn't it? So they bought the mobile phone brand rights it, back in 2016, was it? They bought them from Microsoft. And it is actually a Finnish company, once again, if I'm right. Uh, it's once again based in Espo, or headquartered in Espo. Do you find this same thing you may have found whenever you have a kind of highly knowledgeable, but very, very conservative and regimented engineering culture, say, do you find it disproportionately difficult to be a marketer compared to a place like Lego? I've spent a lot of my time on the agency side, working effectively with tech brands which have an engineering culture, or finance brands which obviously have a kind of economic and financial culture. And both of those cultures seem to come with a kind of innate resistance to marketing. I suppose it's the kind of thing that engineers want to be seen as better engineers than their competitors. They don't want to be admired for their marketing ability. And quite often you run up against this problem, which is that people are very, very happy to spend millions on some sort of technological capability. But if you ask to spend a few million on marketing, there's a natural reluctance. Yeah, I, I definitely have seen that. Uh, but also just to touch upon uh, the, the structure between Nokia and HMD. So they bought back the rights and now HMD Global is producing the Nokia phones based on brand license. So that's, that's just like to the details in the, in the construction of the companies there. But when it comes to the question you have, I do find that kind of pushback, but I've met that in any kind of company that I've been into. And I honestly think that it's because the pace of change we've seen in the last many years, who's like definitely increased in the last two or three years with pandemics, with war in Russia and so on, that development, but also the technological development is not something that we as a human, like we are not designed for that kind of change. Like it, it took us millions of years to go from being on all four to actually standing upright. And then a couple more years, a million years to, to actually start using tools. So our mindset, like our brains are not meant to handle disruption. We're meant to handle slow evolution. And that's a question that I've kept asking myself coming into new companies. And you meet brilliant leaders, well-educated leaders, but then you also see leaders that are your peers or your, your superiors or, or whoever in the company. But you also see these people, they, they acknowledge what's, what is happening, the disruption that is happening. They are giving their kids tablets as well. They stop using, uh, watching TV as well. But at the same time, they keep making the same decisions, building the same processes, the same organizations, the same structures, and keep repeating themselves in the professional lives. And I've kept asking myself that question, how can this happen? Like, how can clearly smart people basically see what's happening, like the changes that are happening and not reacting to it? And, and then a fun thing happened. I, I read this, uh, and I went down the rabbit hole and, and I read this uh, psychologist, uh, Leon Festinger. Ah, yes, I know. Very well. And like he coined like the 1957, he coined this term about cognitive consistency and cognitive harmony and how the brain really wants to make sure that it stays consistent with what the inner life of the mind and what it experiences. Uh, so basically, he uses this example about how a doctor is able to smoke, smoke cigarettes with still being a doctor and how the brain really seeks this internal harmony and have four, have four different ways that it basically lies to itself to make sure that it stays consistent. And I think that that is really what happens in a lot of companies. 
where we, we choose the easy path of doing the same thing, even though we know it might be wrong because we still we still recognize the, the outside world, but we just keep repeating and keep lying to ourselves instead of taking actions because that's the tough way to go. It's always the tougher route to change things, to really recognize what's happening than to do the same thing as you did yesterday. So I think that's what I've experienced in different companies. I think that's a, it's very, very interesting because that whole thing of cognitive dissonance and also the extent to which we'd prefer a poor explanation that makes sense to a better explanation that seems counterintuitive or surprising, for instance. I mean, one of the things I noticed, that this is a recent discussion I've had, which is I've been arguing recently that the reason people buy on deal in supermarkets is partly because the deal provides them with a lower price, but it's largely because the deal makes the decision easier. If you have three bags of oven chips and one of them has 50% extra free on, suddenly you, you've made your decision easy. And in fact, I asked somebody in a large FMCG manufacturer, I said, I'd always wanted to do this test. What happens if you declare a deal, but you don't reduce the price? Now, obviously, it's completely illegal, okay? And um, it's completely unethical. But I've always wanted to do the test. And this person at a large FMCG, for obvious reasons, nameless, said, we do it a few times a year by mistake. In other words, they put 50% extra free on the packaging and forget to reduce the price or hold the price down. And they just said, put it like this. They said, you wouldn't believe how much money we make. Obviously, they correct the mistake as soon as they've discovered it. But it's much, much easier to view the world through an economic lens, lower price, increased demand, than it is to view the world through a psychological lens, which has all kinds of messy, non-linear components, counterintuitive components, components where people actually, of course, you know, there are a large number of, I mentioned this about the sort of flagship smartphone, which is that Samsung could undercut Apple significantly if they wished to. If you're trying to promote a flagship phone, you simply can't make the thing significantly cheaper than your competitor, you know, in defiance of kind of conventional economic logic. And so it's a really, really interesting case where we love to make sense of the world and similarly, of course, if you look at the corporate environment, in many ways, for your career and your reputation, you're better off making a logical decision which has an indifferent outcome to making an illogical decision where the outcome's likely to be better, but in the event that anything goes wrong, you're vastly more exposed to blame. And so we tend to see quality of reasoning as a kind of proxy for quality of decision. And some of the time, maybe it is. But actually, you know, it makes it very, very dangerous in any kind of institutional setting to do something different. And I think especially in a time where you see changes are happening more and more often, like it, it might be like 30 years ago, you would, you would still be able to trust that the company would still exist when you go on retirement. But now that's no longer the case. So if you keep that mindset, then definitely you will be, become obsolete quite quickly. And I think th that is really what companies are being called out on now. It's really about having that mindset of change and embracing change a lot more than just having to see change as something that needs to overcome to get to the next 20 years of profitability and quietness, if you wish. So I think in, in some ways, it's, it's, it's a very tough business climate and it's going to get even tougher in the coming years. But it's also going to benefit the companies that have adapted uh, I wouldn't say, like, I hate the word change readiness, because I think that's basically just you waiting to, to be run over. But it's more an aggressive mindset about driving change and, and, and forcing change upon your own industry and other industries as well. So I think it will benefit the companies and the people and the leaders who have that aggressiveness and are willing to really risk pretty much everything on a daily basis to accelerate the change and really to, to, to push it. Um, and and that's, that's going to be an interesting part. I mean, when we think about it, it's to the shame, I think, of both government and private businesses that it took a pandemic before we experimented with different modes of doing knowledge work. Now, by the way, I'm not suggesting for a second that the office is redundant and everybody can be entirely 100% remote. I think it's unlikely that we find that to be the best solution. It's not impossible, but I think it's unlikely. But some sort of variety of where and how you work is almost certain, I think, to be beneficial to both improve productivity and human well-being. But the fact that even with sort of 25 years of mobile and remote enabling tech, 
not a single business, well, that's not quite true, there were a few small businesses, was actually asking questions about Monday to Friday presenteeism in the office is, I think, emblematic of exactly this pattern, which is it's always safer to do what everybody else does because the risk of individual ridicule. I think Warren Buffett has a wonderful phrase, which is there isn't an instance of an individual lemming getting a lot of blame. You know, if you all make collective mistakes, it's a wonderful way of escaping individual censure. And I think I think that kind of reputational thing is really quite strong in driving people to say, well, you know, I was just doing what I was supposed to be doing. Absolutely. I mean, interestingly, you joined Nokia just the time it launched its new subscription system called Circular. Now, that is an effort, I think, to revolutionize the relationship we have with mobile phones. I think there's a statistic that the average person will have something like 25 mobile phones in their lifetime, maybe more. I wish in my case it were that few. I think I've already had about 30. But it might be worth looking at how circular is an attempt to disrupt the standard model of how people pay for and acquire phones, uh, both for environmental reasons and indeed just for human sanity. Yeah, no, it's a new way of subscribing to a mobile phone instead of buying a mobile phone that we launched in September last year. And uh, again, like one of the numbers is like 5 billion phones were like estimated to potentially end up in landfills just in, in 2022, which is like a, a horrific number of phones and an incredible amount of, of raw materials, very expensive raw materials that we've painfully dug out of the dirt and, and, and the earth to put into mobile phones. So the issue of e-waste and, uh, and tech waste is, of course, becoming increasingly more and more apparent. And uh, so we launched this circular subscription model where you basically subscribe to a phone and you pay a, a monthly subscription fee and then you have your phone. If you break it, uh, you can send it to us and we'll, we'll fix it or we'll send you a new one. And then you'll also get a number of points or we call them seats of tomorrow. So the longer you keep your phone, we don't want to push you into buying a new phone every year like some of our competitors. We would rather have you keep the phone for as long as possible and then you get more and more seats of tomorrow that you would then be able to invest in a number of charities uh, after your choice, some charities that we work with that are either helping the environment, planting trees, or doing something good for, for the environment. And for us, that's a, that's a better way to actually make sure that the phones are being kept in a circular model. So when, like at the end of the, end of the device's lifetime, it will come back to us, we'll send you the, the new version, um, and then we'll make sure that it either has a second life or it will be basically picked apart and, and recycled. So it's a, it's a very different way of, of having a mobile phone. And I think we are subscribing to Netflix. We are subscribing to everything uh, at the moment. I think the next steps uh, could be to actually subscribe to, to your phone. And I think like even for a family household, it's going to be like a, a very different cost. If you have small kids, uh, as I do, I can say that it does add up with, with the number of, of tablets that are being dropped on, on bathroom floors and so on. It adds up very quickly if you're not in a circular model. It's particularly necessary now because there was a kind of case for e-waste at a time when, you know, a phone two years later was a significant functional improvement on its predecessor. But we are really sort of more or less ending up in a mixture of camera wars and built-in obsolescence. And it's becoming, I think, increasingly nonsensical, particularly as some phones are actually designed to actually diminish performance once they reach a certain age as a nudge to people replacing them. But I suppose there's always been a certain recyclability of good phones in terms of the second-hand market. But in the mainstream phone market, the e-waste must be um, particularly gruesome. And I can just imagine you know, thinking, I think I have a drawer somewhere with about five of the things in. And this is a very, very interesting new system, I think. And it, it's uh, genuinely important. And what you'll be able to do is take in the old phone and recycle quite a lot of the rare or more valuable components, or at least reuse the elements uh, that are involved. Yes. So, so just if you have the X30, which is our top line phone right now, so the aluminum is 100% recycled. The plastic is 65% uh, recycled. The packaging is, of course, like... Uh, 94% uh, recycled. Uh, so that's that's the start of the device. And then it basically, it either goes, has a second life, and after the second life it has, it will always end up in a fully circular, being picked apart, and then everything that we can recycle will be recycled. So I think that's that's the difference between a circular model 
and just a, a secondhand market where you just basically buy a, a used device that then will end up in a landfill somewhere where we actually take responsibility for the whole lifetime of the device until it's actually picked into pieces and really recycled through our supply chain. And actually your promotion and revival of feature phones is something which is, I think, also beneficial in this because a feature phone will have a longer life. I also think that a significant segment of the population are just being kind of bullied into having smartphones simply because you know if you go to a mobile phone store now, the choice architecture is 95% smartphone. And I've encountered people, I won't name them, but sort of fairly elderly relatives of mine who have fairly advanced iPhones. And when you actually look at the iPhone, you realize they've never actually downloaded an app. And it strikes me that isn't the best use of technology, but that people have been effectively driven through social pressure and just through the choice architecture of the the phone category. A lot of people have been driven into probably buying smartphones who'd in many ways be happier with something simpler. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Top two challenges brought to you by Alf Insight. Alf Insight helps media owners, agencies, and marketing service providers improve their new business pipelines by equipping them with in-depth insights, accurate information, and daily news updates on the leading and challenger brands in the UK. ALF now also helps sports clubs, venues, and charities with new partnership deals. ALF Insight identifies the brands to target at the right time, providing everything you need to tailor the perfect pitch. Visit ALF Insight, that's ALFinsight.com, or click the link in the episode description to find out more. What do you see as the single top challenge for Nokia as a brand uh, going forward, and the single top challenge for the mobile phone? handset industry as a whole? I think for, for Nokia phones, the biggest challenge is really to let people realize and, and tell them that, that we are in the market. Everyone that I've like I've had the phone with me and uh, and I can just show you, of course, it's not on the podcast, but this is the phone or one of them. It is really to, to let them know because we, we are in like awareness is, is sky high still, but consideration is of course not because not enough people know that we're actually in the market. And I think when I show people the phone, when they feel the phone, suddenly we go very high on the list and i've had people like basically just go like either to a store or online to buy it right after they, they've seen it but that is the biggest challenge for us it's it's not a, like the phone is of high quality the camera's super good so that is our biggest uh, biggest challenge and my challenge as a as a cmo for the mobile industry i, I think actually the e-waste challenge is is one of the biggest ones because we just can't keep pushing more and more phones to people every single year like we would love to push both the tablet and a smart device, a smartphone to, to all consumers. And that is not something that the planet can really afford. It's not a sustainable business model for, for, for the whole mobile industry in the long run. So I think that's a challenge that we need to, we need to look at. 
and as I said, it becomes more and more acute. You know, if you imagine a world in which we replaced our dishwashers every two years, you know, we'd think that was slightly absurd. And okay, there was an early period in the development of mobile phone handsets where form factor was undecided. You know, we hadn't settled on a single form factor, etc., etc. Now, I think when we have, you know, we've basically answered the big questions and we're just entering into a kind of, you know, if we're not careful, we'll just enter into kind of megapixel wars or something you know, relatively meaningless becomes the proxy. Um, a very interesting comment from the the television marketing, which is a sort of problem with getting people to replace their televisions, simply because there used to be a wonderful heuristic about when your television was too old, which was the bezel was too large. You know, in other words, if you had a television which had a two-inch bezel around the screen, that was kind of de facto an old television. And now, of course, once the bezel gets down to about a centimetre, it becomes effectively pretty trivial. But um, when we're hitting a point where actually you can't really tell how new someone's phone is, what we're doing is essentially, uh, you know, an exercise in that built-in obsolescence pioneered by General Motors, uh, you know, so many years ago. There's a sustainability problem there with e-waste, almost undoubtedly. Well, I mean, one thing, maybe you need to do this, just as you need conventional retail, maybe you need conventional mass media advertising. You don't need very much of it, but you need some, I suspect, just to effectively say we're back. Because I suspect, you know, a relatively small ad spend would do a disproportionate amount of work, given the huge levels of familiarity that already pertain. That's at least what we hope. I mean, you mentioned the fact that you're looking to appeal to unserved or underserved target audiences. You know, you'd, you'd argue there's not much point in going for the flagship because that's already a, a well-served category. Where do you see, I mean, the elderly would be one obvious category, but groups of people, fairly large demographics who are at the moment underserved. I think what what we see right now, and also uh, like at my time at MTV, what we saw is like Gen Z, who's growing up right now, is starting really to have uh, taking a very critical stance to social media, to to being digital hooked up all the time to metaverse or whatever, that they're basically taking long breaks from digital and they want to have like a more, be more in control of their digital life and the social media presence and so on. And and I, th- I, I can see definitely a lot of people in that age group is, is taking and um, actively seeking out devices that are, not interfering as much with their lives as as they could have, and so th- there is there is a, an awareness about like how much digital is impacting our lives and how that's taking up too much of our time. We don't have phones that serve that uh, that audience right now. I think that's also the same in the kids space, uh, in the tablets, uh, in the family space, where we we do want to have more control over how much time our kids are spending with the devices, and not just wanting a new and better device that can do even more and even more and even more where we want to have that kind of trust and uh, confidence in that devices also want to be good for us. So I think that that's where Nokia, I think, is, is, is having a brand promise where we're actually coming from a good point, both from a sustainability point of view, but also in the way that we want to deliver value and not just force people to buy more and more and more, spend more and more time, but actually want to, to, to service a need. And then uh, that, that's what we, we will do in, instead of trying to upsell through our devices and through being uh, sticky in our, our device architecture. Because when I think about it, of course, uh, there are a lot of times when I need to carry my phone simply to be a feature phone, and I'm forced to carry all this other functionality with me. Uh, This becomes slightly worse because there are things like parking apps, you know, rail tickets, which now require a telephone, a smartphone. And, you know, I, I, I slightly worry about that a little bit. But there are certainly, you know, large swathes. I've just spent Christmas is rather interesting for me because it's the 10 days of the year where I don't really look at my work email and I don't really look at any social media. I just go into a kind of, uh, you know, uh, a digital sabbatical. And I have to say, every year I notice the same thing, which is that I'm generally happier, more relaxed, less tense. I mean, there are an awful lot of, I think there are an awful lot of aspects of any new technology where we notice the benefits and are slow to assess the negatives. 
I mean, email seemed a perfect technology. It was free, it was instantaneous, it was addressable. How could anything go wrong? And then he realized, well, you're now forced to check your email every 15 minutes because of the 1% chance that there's something important there. It's, you know, I mean, tragically, for whatever reason, you know, you're, you know that email technically has that high priority, medium priority, low priority settings. For whatever reason, nobody's ever used that. And therefore, the burden, therefore, for essentially attaching importance to incoming email falls entirely on the recipient. I find it interesting. It's interesting also that kids are adopting software like Be Real, which I, I don't know if you're familiar, you probably are familiar with it. It's a kind of once a day, you're forced to film yourself right there and then doing whatever it is you're doing, and then you post it. And what that's designed to prevent is it's called Be Real because, you know, quite a lot of the time, quite a lot of our friends are not actually on the beach sunning themselves with a pina colada. They're in a queue in the post office. And so by forcing you to make that post once daily at a kind of randomly assigned time, it means that you actually have a realistic appraisal of your friends' lives rather than being exposed to the edited highlights, which always leave you feeling inadequate by comparison. And so I, th I think you're right about that generation, which is they're the generation who've perhaps been most astute, or at least they've come to it, perhaps they've come to it with the most neutral point of view, because, you know, all of us, are, are, you know, roughly both my age and younger, your age, probably came to this stuff thinking at first that it was basically magic, you know, and so that does lead to a kind of naivety where you're overly excited by the things that it does that were previously impossible. And I think you dangerously neglect the things that may be fairly significantly detrimental. And so I think this generation are the first to come to it with a sort of state of equanimity, where they go, yeah, it's, it's kind of good in a way, and it's nice to be able to stay in touch with your friends, but actually, this is something that I need to ration. But I think the naivety with which businesses adopted email without asking for a second whether it might have a downward effect on productivity, because people are essentially breaking off concentration every 35 minutes to distract themselves with something which 95% of the time is entirely unimportant and not urgent. You know, the fact that, again, we failed to ask questions about that seems a fairly major oversight, I think. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree. And that, that comes back to the, the topic we discussed before about like, why did it take a pandemic before we could start discussing uh, the structures at, at, at work and, and how, how to actually, it, it, it required a completely systemic breakdown before we, we actually were able to, to change that. And I, I remember clearly like one of my, my previous bosses, I'm not going to mention the company, but when a younger employee asked her if we could start doing this whole working from home once a day, that was pre, pre pandemic. And she said like, oh, once a week. And she said, "Like, no, no, I'll, I'll, you can work from home two days a week. That's what I call weekends." And immediately, she ridiculed an, an employee in front of 500 people. And of course, uh, like, no one asked that question before the pandemic hit. So it really requires, with all of these like really big systemic changes, that that something big happens, and and that that that, that requires courage to actually go against that. But that's that's what ne what's needed if you want to be a company that that leads. You need to take some chances. You need to do something before others that might be ridiculed and might be be called uh, naive, but but it needs to be done before you can actually take that 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 lead. That's very very interesting. When you promote something like circular, I, I always notice this because I'm drinking. You may have noticed I'm drinking water out of a can. Now, what's very interesting is apparently cans are recyclable, and uh, actually said on it, cans recycle forever. I'd like to claim that I'm drinking the water out of the can because of the environmental benefits that cans offer over pet bottles. In truth, what I discovered is that water from a can is much more delicious than water from a plastic bottle. Now, when you promote the sustainability of your phones, will you necessarily make a direct appeal to the consumer's appetite for sustainability and environmental responsibility? Or is there a kind of oblique way where you say, this phone will be good for five years? I think what's important for us to say, you're not compromising on the quality and premiumness of the product. It's a beautiful product. It's well-designed. It's not a second tier product or second hand product. It's not something that you will be able to see like this is actually made. No, we want to pre to create premium devices, absolutely premium devices, but it also comes with the benefit that it's 
way more sustainable than other phones at similar range and price points. So I think that's, to me, like, yes, you have a small segment of consumers who will buy anything because it's sustainable, because it has that eco element. But if you want to reach scale, whereas also where, you, where you're reaching scale on the impact on the environment, then you need to create both beautiful premium products, but also that are sustainable. And that's where it comes to be really, really difficult because like pretty much anyone can build a phone that is extremely sustainable, but it costs like a, almost the same as a, as a small car. If you want to do something that can actually compete and be premium uh, with the right price point and really can have that uh, environmental impact at scale, then it becomes difficult. But I think that we've started to solve those issues in some of our phones. Of course, we can always get better and sustainability is something that we constantly need to improve on. But I think we're, we would definitely have a, a very strong value proposition in, in that regard. And I suspect that the Nokia reputation for build quality carries over in that, you know, they were always produced to be beautifully solid objects and i suspect there's what you might call an oblique way of promoting sustainability which is through general robustness and um, i think you have a natural brand strength in that area one thing as a new arrival i would look at from a behavioral science point of view is i think the choice architecture the way the different products are named with a combination of letters and numbers i think you're in danger of falling into saab territory I always, you know, made an only half frivolous comment that one of the reasons that Saab, which was in many ways a tremendous brand, one of the reasons it died is that I asked a Saab owner what was the difference between a Saab 900 and a Saab 95, and they didn't know. BMW, of course, got that wonderfully right for a long time. But I, I think the choice architecture or the, the portfolio probably needs clarification. Is that a fair comment? I suspect it's been named by engineers, put it that way. It's a very fair comment, uh, yeah. I'll just leave it leave it at that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I won't quiz you any more than that. But um, um, do you also see the cost of living crisis? Do you see that as a long-term economic issue? And do you see that, along with the pandemic, as fundamentally changing quite a few consumer behaviours, particularly in this category, actually? I can't predict too much about uh, about the future, unfortunately. I would be in the stock markets a lot more if I could, but I would predict it to be uh, like a, a bit longer before it starts to change. Uh, I would I would say twenty twenty four to twenty twenty five. I hope for us for everyone that it, it does get better, but I, I also am not convinced that it will get back to where we were four or five years ago, which is probably like from this for the sake of the planet, probably a, a good thing that we're not getting back there, and then that people will be more conscious about what they purchase and what they invest in. At least the, the mainstream audience will be more concerned about what they invest in. But then again, when we look at the pandemic, one of the categories we saw really like excelling throughout the pandemic, that was luxury goods. So it's it's also, I wouldn't expect that. Like if I had stocks and, and shares at LMVH, in the beginning of the pandemic, I would have definitely sold them, but that would have been the wrong choice because they've really excelled throughout the pandemic. So it's very difficult to predict how uh, the psychology of consumers are going to change based on the development and the changes that we see in the in the whole yeah in the whole world. I suppose the way you'd explain it with L LVMH and so forth is that consumers of whatever wealth have a certain appetite for treats. I think it's uh, John Quelch, uh, who is the Harvard Dean of Harvard Business School, divided products into, let me see, it was staples, treats, postponables, and kind of optionals. So an optional thing would be a cruise. You know, you can have it, but if you're financially constrained, you just do without. Car replacement would be a postponable. I suppose mobile phone replacement is to some extent a postponable in that there is that period, I suppose, where you think, well, I could get a new phone, but I can also leave it for another six months. For some people, I imagine mobile phones are a treat. And then the other one is the staple. And it's quite, a, I must say, Quelch's sort of four-way split is quite a useful way of understanding things because I suppose what happened in the pandemic is people were denied an awful lot of treats in the sense that you couldn't have meals out, you couldn't go on holiday, you know, you probably wouldn't want to replace your car if that was what you wanted to do. But the one thing where area where they could treat themselves was remote ordering of luxury goods, even if there was nowhere to, nowhere to wear them. Exactly, that's the point. That's my point. Like you, you, you buy expensive bags, but you cannot you cannot wear them to to to, to any kind of gallery opening because it's not happening. No, that, that's a peculiar thing. But then maybe maybe people. I mean, 
Um, I, I know there was there was a disproportionate uh, emphasis on tops rather than bottoms in terms of clothing. So people were buying kind of sweatpants and Versace t-shirts, I think. So that may be explained by the Zoom phenomenon. I don't know. But there was something similar, actually, in 2008 with the financial crisis known as the lipstick effect, which is sales of kind of super premium lipsticks went through the roof. I suppose this isn't true for probably people significantly below median income, but the 50% of people above median income have quite a lot of discretionary expenditure which they can effectively just redirect if circumstances change. What we undoubtedly saw was that, you know, a sudden rush to take vacations towards the end of this year, where people were kind of making up for lost time. And so there must be an element to things, which is, you know, the, the expenditure is kind of discretionary. But So standard economics, you know, where you buy on the basis of need... And what what, that, what I suppose that means is that competitive sets need to be treated more broadly in that, you know, people who can't take a holiday will then buy a piece of designer clothing or a hugely expensive pair of shoes or whatever. And so, you know, what is a competitive category becomes more and more debatable, I think, as consumer spending becomes more complex. Yeah. And, and, and again, I, I think that that's still going to lead to the companies that are the most agile, that are the most willing to take risk will be the one that, that will take take advantage of those like ever changing uh, changing psychologies uh, consumer psychology or industries that's going to be competing and sometimes not competing you need to be very agile and uh, and and willing to to be able to build something that can move very quickly uh, to to take advantage of those changes so both at Lego and um, and at MTV, you were very much involved in digital transformation. It's always struck me digital transformation was a little bit of a kind of weird catch-all phrase, which basically says, hey, why not buy a £2 million consulting project? But nonetheless, do you see yourself, how do you see your approach, for example, to retail? Do you still have a lot of faith in conventional physical retail to reach certain audiences? To what extent would you look to sort of transform downstream the way you go to market so it's a very good question very very big question so uh, two things i think when it comes to digital transformation yes the, the two million dollar uh, consultant project that that is typically what they pay externals i've always been hired internally so so never saw those two million dollars my way but 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 and i think that's also how transformation is really done it, it's really done through internal teams that are driving that change uh, like uh, buy-in from the top and then internal teams and then you might fuel it with some consultants but but it really needs to be internally driven to succeed when it comes to to the marketing function i think that we've been through a, a number of years where marketing and the cmo role has taken over more and more the responsibility to drive the digital transformation and the digital agenda taking it over from a cto or the cio and the structure that we now put in place at hmd and nokia phones is that product design also sits with the, with the CMO function. Uh, same with online sales. And I think that's because the industry, what I also see and what also I think Lego was, was quite advanced in that one, uh, is to have basically CMO also being the, the chief experiences officer. So making sure that, that the, the whole consumer experience, whether it's product experience, whether that's marketing experience, uh, content experience uh, in, in Lego's case, that's, that sits within the same function. Um, and and I think we need to move away from the days where you have an R and D team that develops a product, and then marketing is putting a story around it, and then the sales team are, are selling it. It needs to be way more integrated to really be effective. But then also with a global company, there is a huge difference between selling a feature phone in South Africa than selling a, a smartphone in in the UK. And you cannot have the same approach, and you cannot say like here's the digital assets, go out and sell a feature phone to someone who might not even have internet. So that's like the point of sale is very, very different uh, in those, those different markets. And retail is still super important in, 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 in many, many markets. And I think still in, in most markets. Um, and then some, some areas we have, have online as a very, very important sales channel. So again, I, I think it's, it's being very differentiated. You, you have the same problem with, with, with smartphones online uh, as you do with selling televisions online, I, um, which is that essentially you're selling black rectangles. 
that, um, it, you know, it's impossible to convey, obviously, screen quality, build quality. There are a whole lot of quite important tactile variables which can't be really conveyed adequately online at all. And if you're asking people to make what is a slightly dissident or eccentric decision, our old friend, the high street retailer, and it's worth noting that every single network operator has high street stores. If ever there were a business you'd think would have attempted to be wholly digital, it's that one. But no, they, you know, Apple opens stores, okay? I mean, <laughs> we have to actually acknowledge that. So you have a partnership with Google, which is good to know. Any other particular partnerships you see upcoming? That's too too soon to <laughs> to uh, do any announcement about that one, but I, I definitely see us uh, partnering with uh, with a certain amount of partners uh, outside the industry. I think it's it's very important for for a company like ATMD and Nokia Phones to actually have partners that that develop and that we can grow together with. So I think that's uh, that, that's really important also to show that it's more than just a phone. It's also partnerships that need to deliver on our brand promises about sustainability and like value for money and quality. So hopefully we'll be able to announce them within a year. Well, all I can say to our listeners now is watch this space. I think we can expect, given your past performance and you know the extraordinary brand you work for, I think we can expect to actually keep a watching brief on this for quite a lot of activity in the next year. So thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. You've been listening to On Brand with Alf and Rory Sutherland. And if you want to do business with Nokia or any other brand in the mobile phone sector, contact the ALF Insight team on their website, which is www.alfinsight.com. That's A-L-F-Insight.com. You can also find the link in the episode description below. The series is produced and, as ever, expertly edited by Ultimate Sound and Vision, so big high five to them. And to make sure you receive the next episode, please do subscribe. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then give us an additional like. All that remains for me to say is see you next time, and thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.